0: to Nanny Ogg's Book Club, a Discworld podcast. Join us as we read through all 41 of the fantastical and outrageous Discworld novels. I'm Tessa.
1: And I'm Nigel.
0: This is Episode 3, The Color of Magic. The Color of Magic was the first ever Discworld novel published in 1983, so we are going all the way back to the beginning. I decided to do this one third because really, as we will discuss, this book feels more like a bit than a cohesive story. Pratchett specifically described this book as a parody, quote, what Blazing Saddles did for Westerns. So he was really more interested at this point in the satirical elements than the narrative ones that he would become interested in later. There have been three adaptations of The Color of Magic. There's been a TV movie, a graphic novel, and a computer game.
1: And I have seen none of those.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I have only seen the TV movie. I was not impressed.
1: Famously, I have not seen anything.
0: Uh, And that's, you know, I feel like people know that about you at this point. Right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I just choose not to perceive it.
0: Not to to see it. So, unlike... Subsequent Discworld novels, The Color of Magic is divided into four main sections that almost act like interconnected short stories or novellas. Each of these sections remixes and satirizes classic sword and sorcery genre tropes and texts that were very popular in the 70s and 80s before this book came out. The overall plot introduces us to the failed wizard Rincewind, a cowardly loser who has the worst luck in the universe and only knows one spell that he cannot say for fear of what it does. He is coerced by the patrician of Ankh-Morpork into becoming a guide or a protector for Two Flower, the Discworld's first tourist from the counterweight continent, little knowing that this job will lead him on a journey to the literal edge of the disc, literally hanging off of the disc by his fingers. Nigel, what were your first impressions of... The Color of Magic, the first Discworld novel.
1: I'm going to be honest, I didn't like this. I really didn't like this. And I I know it's only the third one I've read. And so I don't know whether it's the worst Discworld book, but it's definitely like the worst rated on my Goodreads out of all the uh, Discworld books so far. Yeah, I gave Mort four stars. I gave Weird Sisters five stars. And I gave The Color of Magic three.
0: I, and I feel like that's fair. Like I said at the beginning, this feels like it's more of an idea, like the Discworld. Like this is the Discworld idea. This is like proof of concept. It's not. It's not like a cohesive narrative.
1: Like I know ugh, listeners won't be able to see this, but I like I said that I have thoughts about this novel. This novel feels more like a bunch of like wacky sitcom episodes. You know, it feels like a will they, won't they kind of rom com. Uh, almost between Rincewind and Death, you know, like will Death <laughs> claim? Uh, will Death claim Rincewind's soul? Will Rincewind escape? Who knows?
0: Enemies to lovers between Death and Rincewind.
1: Yeah, you dead heard it here right. first. Dead right, honestly.
0: So, how familiar were you with the sword and sorcery? Because this is like a very specific satire that's happening here. Like, I know you were familiar with Macbeth because you're an English major when we read Weird Sisters, and obviously Mort has a lot of literary references that you got as well.
1: Tessa, I'm, I'm into Shakespeare because I'm gay, not because I'm English <laughs> student, okay?
0: And that's fair. That is absolutely fair. But, like, are you familiar with some of the source material that Pratchett is riffing on in Color of Magic?
1: No, not at all. It's really not the type of fantasy that i go, I go in for, and I I don't know whether where whether I ever will. Probably a bit disappointing, but you're um, you know that's just how it is. That's not what the type of fantasy I'm into. It seems very boring.
0: Yeah. So for those of you who are maybe unfamiliar with some of the things that Pratchett is referencing, which to be fair, I was also unfamiliar with a lot of these stories. When I first read the novel when I was a teenager, I, was, I had not read a lot of sword and sorcery. I'd read Lord of the Rings, which is, of course, where a lot of fantasy comes from. But I'd never read some of these like more mid-century, to 70s and 80s types of what we'd call genre sword and sorcery. But for those of you who are unfamiliar with the, the references, so the first section, The Color of Magic... The characters Bravd and the Weasel are specific references from Fritz Lieber's sword series. The Sending of Eight, which is like the second novella section, has some really Lovecraftian vibes to it. So we can talk about those here in a little bit. And then The Lure of the Worm is a direct parody of Anne McCaffrey's Dragonflight series, which I have since read. So I I actually write about Anne McCaffrey in my dissertation. So I have I know her work probably more than I know any of the others in that are being referenced here. But that's just a a quick summary of what what is being parodied here. I wonder if people who like grew up reading these would find this a little bit more engaging.
1: I don't know. Obviously, I can't speak to contemporary accounts because that is before I was born. And also then I don't know whether, I don't know whether, like, I, I mean, I don't know anyone who's getting into that old, old fantasy now. Like, I feel like if people are getting into fantasy, the oldest they'll go is, like, Lord of the Rings, and that was written in the 50s. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah.
1: But it's like, that's a specific type of, you know, thing that's different from like this kind of thing which is from the 70s or whatever.
0: Yeah, so what he's talking about is very different from Lord of the Rings. I'm actually going to read uh, let me read you a a sort of extended quote. It's from a speech that Pratchett gave in 1992. So he's this is about a decade after the first book came out. Um it the speech was called The Elves Were Bastards, which I think is a great title for a speech. This this to me What he says here kind of encapsulates his frustration with Sword and Sorcery and what fantasy had become in the early 80s when he wrote The Color of Magic, and I think it informs a lot of what he was trying to do in this particular novel. Unfortunately, there's still a market for rubbish. I picked up a recently written fantasy book at the weekend, and one character said of another, he will grow wroth. Oh my god. And the phrase was in a page of similar jaw-breaking, mock-archaic narrative. Belike, if faith, this is the language we use to turn high fantasy into third-rate romantic literature. Yonder lies the palace of my fodder, the king. That's not fantasy, that's just Tolkien reheated until the magic boils away. I get depressed with these fluffy dragons and noble elves. Elves were never noble, they were cruel bastards, and I dislike heroes. You can't trust the buggers. They always let you down. I don't believe in the natural nobility of kings because a large percentage of them in our history have turned out to be power-crazed idiots. And I certainly don't believe in the wisdom of wizards. I've worked with their modern equivalents, and I know what I am talking about. Fantasy should present the familiar in a new light. I try to do that on the Discworld. It's a way of looking at the here and now, not the there and then. Fantasy is the Ur-literature from which everything else sprang. At its best, it is truly escapist. But the point about escaping is that you should escape to as well as from. You should go somewhere worthwhile and come back better for the experience. Too much alleged fantasy is just empty sugar, life with the crests off. Does that, like, I find that to be a really interesting excerpt from that speech because I think that... For someone who actually really loves fantasy as a genre, he's very, very critical of fantasy that's just sort of Tolkien reheated, is what he calls it. And I think that's what he's deliberately making fun of here or riffing off of in The Color of Magic.
1: Yeah, I uh, I really <laughs> noticed it in the, like when I was reading it, some parts were just painful to get through, especially the um, Anne McCaffrey one, The Lore of the Worm. They have a section where, oh my god, what's the barbarian's name? Prun, right? Yeah, where he's talking about the princess, and he's literally like, oh, the wench was comely enough. And it's like, what? No, stop.
0: The wench. yeah.
1: (laughs) Shut up about the wench. Shut up about the wench. I hate that word so much.
0: Yeah, but I don't think Pratchett particularly likes it either.
1: Oh, I know. I know it's not like Pratchett. On his own, because he wouldn't be like, I mean, because I've read later Discworld books and they're nothing like this, but I fucking hate this mode of writing. It makes sense when Tolkien is writing in similar language to that, but not that type where it's like, he's going for something which emulates Anglo-Saxon literature, because he's a professor of Anglo-Saxon literature, he studied the language, he's trying to make fantasy, which provides a fictional fantasy history for England, it makes sense everywhere else it doesn't i hate it
0: right yeah and i think that that's kind of part of what he's doing is the idea that you get these characters like Rune who talk this way and then you have other characters like Rincewind who are just like what the hell are you talking about like what the fuck How, why the fuck are you talking like that like it's the juxtaposition between like here's a familiar fantasy trope and then here's a way that we can undermine it
1: do you know that um, Breaking Bad meme where it's like Jesse, what the fuck are you talking about?
0: No, I don't. I have actually never seen Breaking Bad.
1: Oh well, it's uh, completely unrelated to that. But it's like you know, he'll say something you just completely makes no sense to anyone else other than the person saying it. And you just, you know, like beyond lies the house of my father, the king. You know, he will grow wrath, and it's just then you just turn and you're like Jesse, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> That's the it almost attitude becomes I have.
0: Monty Python esque in some ways,
1: yeah, but see Monty Python knew what they were doing and were able to do it well, whereas I don't think Terry Pratchett is particularly good at parodying, especially in this first book, a subgenre of fantasy, which is particularly bad in its writing, you know
0: right at a certain point, it's like if i don't get if I don't enjoy the source material. Why would I enjoy this?
1: Yeah. I think that's that makes probably sense. I think maybe that's probably the biggest disconnect I might have had where it's like I'm not invested in this story at all. I really could not care less about what happens half the time to have these characters. Um that's probably very bold of me, I'm sorry, but
0: no, it's totally fine. I that's kind of how I felt the first time that I read it as well. And I think it's improved a little bit on reread, but not the, the, the Rinse Wind books are not my favorite of the Discworld books, um, which is another reason why I wanted to save this one for number three, because I wanted to get you hooked on the concept before I, I had you read some of the earlier ones.
1: I appreciate that. Like as someone <laughs> who, as someone who, first of all, I mean, I would have continued reading anyway, had I started with The Color of Magic, mainly because that's how my brain works. If I start reading a series or watching it, I'm going to have to finish it no matter how bad. But I really appreciate that because, like, you, you know, you see people and they're talking about a show or whatever. And it's like, oh, no, you just like, you just got to skip the first, like, two seasons or, you know, you got to watch like a 100 episodes of this and then it'll get good. And it's like, I don't really have time for that.
0: Yeah, nobody has time for that. I'm
1: busy. Leave me alone.
0: You're welcome. I I avoided that for you. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, since you brought up characters just now, now might be a good time to talk about some of the central characters that we are introduced to here. We saw Rincewind very briefly in Mort, if you remember. He was kind of in the background at Unseen University, but now he is the main character. So how how did you feel about Rincewind?
1: I mean, I like Rincewind as a character, but I don't know whether I like him as a character in The Color of Magic, if that makes sense. I just think everyone is poorly characterized because this is so specific a satire and it's entirely a completely different reference point to anything I've experienced and so it's like I can't get in with this characterization but I know like what Rincewind is later
0: So let's let's talk about him a little bit. So he's he's definitely described he's like a unseen university which is like the wizard school of the Discworld. Yeah. He's an unseen university dropout because when he was a student, he snuck into the library on a dare, which the, the Unseen University library is definitely a fixture that will become more and more interesting as we go along. But he snuck into the library on a dare and opened the Octavo, right? Because there is an eighth color. Yeah. Which is the... The Octarine Color. And and that's what the book is named after. The Color of Magic is Octarine, which we can talk about.
1: That took me so long to figure out what they were on about. Where it was like, why is this book called The Color of Magic? And even though I had heard about Octarine, it was like, it didn't click for so long. And then I was like, oh, okay, this is actually kind of like a clever book title. I'll give you that, Color of Magic.
0: Color of Magic is a pretty good book title. I mean... So far, what's your favorite book title? More Weird Sisters or Color of Magic?
1: I think purely in terms of title alone, the Color of Magic. Shame that the book was such a letdown to me, because it's like (laughs) more. Oh, it just means death. The book is about death, so that's kind of like the worst out of those three. And Weird Sisters, like what you know, it relates to, and you're like, oh, you got that in joke in Shakespeare because there's a lot of Shakespearean references and stuff. So that you know, that'd be second. But I think just purely. In terms of title, the color of magic, that's like, wow.
0: Yeah. And like the fact that there is actually a color of magic, it's octarine. And I love that he tries to explain what colors it might relate to, but he makes it very clear that there isn't like a earth equivalent to the color. Yeah. Which I find fascinating. Like in my mind, it's kind of a yellowish green.
1: In my mind, it's kind of orange. And maybe that's just because it begins with O. And that's how my brain works.
0: And that's fair. I, I just think it's interesting that, like, I, I wonder if everybody has a different color in mind when they think of octorine.
1: Mm, but see, here's the thing. Like, here's the thing. Shrimp have more color receptors in th- their eyes than we do, so they can perceive more colors. So maybe they can see octorine.
0: That would make sense. It would be the tragedy of the shrimp to be able to see a color that humans can't, but they can't communicate about it. Mm-hmm. Rincewind, as a character, gets kicked out of the Unseen University because he reads the Octavo and one of the spells lodges itself in its brain. He doesn't know what it does. It's like one of the primary spells of the universe. So who knows? It could stop time. It could unravel reality. Like, we just don't know what it does. And he doesn't either. But he can't learn any other spells because it's taking up, like, all the magic space in his brain. So he gets kicked out of the Unseen University, but he still is a wizard because wizards are born, not made. And he compensates for this fact by wearing a pointy hat that has the word wizard embroidered on it, which I thought was kind of clever. He's definitely like very cowardly. Like he, do- he doesn't, he does Rincewind is the equivalent of someone who doesn't want to be a main character, but keeps becoming the main character, which I think is a very funny characterization i'm not sure it works very well in this particular novel but i do appreciate somebody who like really doesn't want to be the main character of something and yet keeps getting pulled into that position
1: yeah where it's like he seems like the most put upon person in the entire world and i think that's largely his fault but yeah
0: how is it his fault
1: yeah like as in I think he gets into an awful lot of situations or allows himself to be dragged into situations for better or worse, which make him put upon and the main character.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he keeps trying to get away.
1: He really could have just said no and done more to get away from Two Flower, I think.
0: But the patrician threatened him with death.
1: Yeah, I know. But like, he could have done more, couldn't he?
0: I guess after they leave on morpork he could have like parted ways with him. Yeah, Yeah, I I guess I could see that. So let's talk about Two Flower then, who's like the other big character in this book. Two Flower is the world's first, the Discworld's first tourist. He's from a completely different continent than Ankh-Morpork and a a much richer continent. And so he shows up in Ankh-Morpork and there's sort of a series of jokes around Two Flower where he comes from a completely different culture. So it's sort of a fish out of water. He only really can communicate either through Rincewind, because they both know a language in common, or through his, like, guidebook of Ankh-Morporkian phrases, which, if you've ever seen a tourist do that, it's a real thing. Of course, he has the luggage, he also has a camera, which no one's ever seen before, and, like, it is interesting that Ankh-Morpork, at this point, is not really, like, a steampunk town, the way that we'll see later in books like Weird Sisters and more, it's more like a traditional fantasy city, like with a tavern and, you know, heroes that that sort of congregate there. And it is interesting, this idea of bringing in like a tourist. What did you think about Two Flower as a character?
1: I didn't care for Two Flower as a character, but I think the concept of a tourist in a fantasy world is quite hilarious because it's like, they take these things for granted. Like, when you look at Lord of the Rings, they live in such a beautifully described world, and, like, you know, completely separate from Peter Jackson's um, visualization of it in the films. But, like, Tolkien goes to great lengths to describe how beautiful the Shire and different elements are. And, you know, like, even M. Mul um like, that harsh, karst landscape, that's like the burn here in Ireland. And it's like, I can't go around Ireland without constantly being like, wow, I live in such a fucking pretty country. Like, if I lived in a fantasy world, I would never shut up about it. And everyone just takes it <laughs> for granted. So the fact that, like, he's a tourist and he has, like, this dainty little camera, I think that's a really cool concept. I just, like, really couldn't care about Two Flower.
0: Let's talk about the camera here in a second. But what about Two Flower was off-putting for you?
1: I don't know. And I really hate saying I don't know, but it's just like, can I just say Vibes? Like, oh my God, uh, yeah, the I Vibes think so. were off.
0: Vibes is like an emerging analytical category when it comes to film, books. Yeah, vi- Vibes is a totally reasonable.
1: Like, he seems like he's set up to be some kind of like, I don't know, comedic psychic, but then they never like really go whole hog on it. Or at least, like enough for me to reasonably buy into this thing. So it feels like he's kind of in. He's like caught in between being the straight man to Rincewind's like wacky goofball and having him be the wacky goofball to Rincewind's straight man.
0: Rincewind seems constantly exasperated by Two Flower, but. You're right in the fact that their dynamic does seem to switch between which one is being more ridiculous, I guess is the best word. Like because yeah, two flower the a lot of these stories seem to be two flower gets them in trouble, Rincewind tries to get them out of trouble, they have a bout of luck, but then that luck turns into shit by the end of the story. Like like it's just that's kind of the natural arc of all four of these, really. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about the camera. I, this is actually something that continues throughout all of the Discworld novels when we talk about cameras. So cameras are a new technology to Ankh-Morpork when Two Flower brings them. But by the time we get into the later books, you'll see that it becomes a lot more ubiquitous. A lot more people have cameras. And what's interesting is that in the Discworld, there's this real like tension between things that on Earth in the real world would be science and magic which we'll talk about here a little bit more later. But in the Discworld cameras, instead of being a mechanism, there's like a little imp with a, it describes how he has like an easel and like there's like a bed in there. Like there's an imp that lives in this camera and paints the pictures that come through the lens. And it, like at one point he like emerges and is like, you've run out of pink. <laughs> We've run out of pink paint. And it's it's so interesting to me, this idea that like you take this device and make it more magical, which kind of feels a lot more steampunk to me.
1: Yeah, it's really weird because this is kind of like pre-steampunk, like Ankh-Morpork feels more steampunk in later books that we've read, whereas this feels like this feels like sort of your traditional fantasy town. That's what Ankh-Morpork feels like in the color magic. It feels like, you know, something similar to Bree in the Lord of the Rings.
0: Yes, there's definitely Bree vibes with the the Broken Drum, the tavern that they go to.
1: Yeah, the one that gets set on fire.
0: You're right. <laughs> because the owner is committing insurance fraud.
1: I I think that's nearly as funny as the concept of a tourist in a fantasy land, the concept of fantasy tax fraud. I look <laughs> I'm a big proponent of tax fraud or tax evasion when it's done by the working class, so I can respect that. I have no respect for people who don't pay their taxes like um, Bill Gates, like, eat the rich. Because definitely the patr- the patrician, like, if there were an uprising in Ankh-Morpork, he would get eaten first.
0: Well, it's funny that you say that, because the patrician, even though he's not really named here, he... Is a much more important character in the Watch and he's kind of beloved, which is interesting, or at least beloved by readers, not necessarily by Ankh Morporkians, because he's the one who comes up with like the guild system of Ankh Morpork that we see explained in Weird Sisters, which <clears throat> like everything is sort of like everything is made into a guild. Like there's the Guild of Assassins and the Guild of which we start to see here, but it's not really explained. There's the Guild of Assassins. There's the Thieves Guild. There's like a Sex Workers Guild. There's it, it's just it's really interesting how that works. And we talked about that a little bit in in Weird Sisters. But yeah, this version of the the Patrician is very like
1: dictatorial. Yeah, he definitely has sort of that. Are you familiar with the poem Ozymandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley?
0: Yes, I have to say that I am not a huge fan of Percy Shelley.
1: Oh? I actually
0: wrote. I wrote an entire nonfiction essay when I was in undergrad on how much I hated Percy Shelley. Okay, (laughs) The whole thing was about that. But I do, I am aware of that poem, yes.
1: Yeah, so I'm thinking of the, I'm thinking of the line, hold on now and I'll bring it up so I can quote it accurately. Poetry Foundation, thank you. Uh, Yeah, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. That's what it feels like, this version of the Patrician. But it's really interesting that you say that he's beloved in later books because, like, Rincewind doesn't feel like Rincewind in this book. Death doesn't feel like death in other books. Terry Pratchett is kind of hitting a learning curve here.
0: Yeah, it's like he... These characters really develop into something else later. We kind of see the... You know, to borrow terms from Botany, we see the germ here. Like, it's the... Ew, it's like the... The, the germ of the idea is here and it's not really until later that we see what these ideas become. But yeah, the, the insurance thing is hilarious because Two Flower is an insurance adjuster and the idea of insurance is also new to Ankh-Morpork. So like we haven't, we don't ever see the counterweight continent in this novel anyway, but it seems like a more bureaucratic place perhaps or or at least a more like Modernized. I don't want to say progressive because I don't think it's progressive, but it it seems like a more developed or a more like closer to what we would say Earth is like than Ankh Morpork. Yeah. And there's this great moment where he's trying to explain what insurance is to Rincewind. Let me see if I can find it. So there's this place where there's this this. It's on page forty and forty one of my book. Where he's trying to explain what in insurance is, and he he says the syllables to Rincewind because it doesn't translate into the language that they both speak, and Rincewind calls it in sewer ants, <laughs> mm. and so which I think is hilarious. So you you take out an in sewer ants policy, and you, I work out the odds against the cargo being lost based on weather reports and piracy records for the last twenty years. Then I add a bit, then you pay me some money based on those odds, and the bit. Rincewind said, waggling a finger solemnly. And then if the cargo is lost, I reimburse you. Reburse? Pay you the value of your cargo, said Two Flower patiently. I get it. It's like a bet, right? A wager? In a way, I suppose. And you make money at this in-sewer, Ants? It offers a turn on a return on investment, certainly. And I, I love that because it's like, yeah, like, All insurance is is a wager. Like it's this whole industry that's grown up. I mean, and I don't know what it's like in Ireland because I know you all have a very, you all have a very different like, especially healthcare system than we do. But like thirty percent of U.S. like jobs are in the insurance industry. Like it's that's a significant portion of employment in the U.S. And the fact is, is that it all boils down to a wager, right? Like your house is not going to burn down, but if it does burn down, here's the money that you get. And I, I really appreciated that sort of explanation of it.
1: I don't really understand any of this, so it's like <laughs> that could be how it works. That could also, yeah. I mean, like I mean, it I is don't how it know. Works. <laughs> Personally, I think I'm too hot to do math.
0: That and that's fair. That is fair. But he explains. So Tua Flower ends up explaining this to the owner of the broken drum who promptly signs an insurance policy with two flower and then burns his, his in down to collect on the money, which is insurance fraud. And of course in the process, he ends up starting a, a huge fire in ankh which is sort of the arc of that first short story, the color of magic. And we obviously see death for the first time in this book. And Like you mentioned, this is a very different version of the character than what we will see later. The death in this book seems very cruel compared to the later versions of death that we'll see. He seems like he's actively taking enjoyment out of his job, which we don't really see that in later versions of death. He seems a lot more implacable in later versions and a lot more interested in humanity.
1: I thought I—I I mean, I kind of like the whole will they, won't they, dynamic. Uh, but like, I mean, when you point it out, it does feel slightly weird because then it kind of like gives up halfway through it. You know what I mean? Where it's like, yeah, like I like the idea that Rizwind is just like too busy or put upon to die at the correct time. Uh, like the <laughs> death is like, well, well, really, you have to. I and mean, then since I, yeah, but oh, come on, but uh so I think it's an interesting dynamic for this book. It's probably like the thing I enjoy the most out of this book. I enjoy very little out of this book, if I'm being honest, um, as a collective whole. There's certainly like some individual parts that I was like, oh, that's quite good. But I think my favorite part out of this is the um will they won't they between rincement and death.
0: Yeah, Death gets very invested in whether Rincewind is going to die or not in this book. And he seems very like gleeful about it. Like, I've got you this time. It's almost like a like a wily coyote situation where he's like 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 he's sitting in the tree waiting for Rincewind to fall. Rincewind is saved, and so he ends up killing like these gnats instead. Mm. But It's funny you say that because later we see that death still has an interest in whether Rincewind will die or not, but it's more of a, like, it's less of a, like, I'll get you this time, my pretty, and more of a, like, curiosity, like, because of all the people in the universe, death actually doesn't know when Rincewind is going to die and that, like, irks him. Yeah. And so he, like, keeps showing up when Rincewind might die.
1: Yeah, and it's also, like... Another thing which I thought was interesting was, like, at the end of the book, like, you see Scrofula pretending to be Death and trying to claim, for <laughs> which I thought, first of all, was funny. But I think it's interesting, especially, like, in the order we read them, because in Mort, you have, like, death goes on a holiday, and more as his apprentice, starts taking on the aspect of death and starts speaking in a distinctive death way. And then in Weird Sisters, you have the play where they're playing death and then has to Death has to come on and play himself on stage. So like, you know, he has to take on an aspect of death, which isn't necessarily what death really is, is what the play demands death to be. And so I think there's this really interesting through line that goes through the um, books. I don't know whether this is like an actual thing or just a thing that I've happened to have like randomly picked up on. But I think it's interesting that you have this through line of people becoming death, people taking on aspects of death.
0: Yeah, and that that is you're you're very perceptive because that is a through line in the books. It is not Scrofula as de- a stand-in for death and Mort as a stand-in for death, those are not the only people that we see do that in the series. Oh, good. And part of it is I think that like the way that this is set up, the the this universe and the system of magic and everything that Pratchett has done. Is that there's like a death-shaped hole in the universe, and somebody has to fill that hole, and it can either be death, like the Grim Reaper, who speaks in all capital letters, which we still see here, or it has to be somebody else. And I I think that's a really interesting thing that you've pointed out here.
1: I like the um, I like that moment where Death talked to Fate, but it's really weird because Death talk like. Death talks to fate, but it doesn't feel like fate. It like you know, this feels like a moment from Sandman almost. But fate feels like dream instead of like this feels like dream and death talking, or dream and uh destiny talking, not necessarily uh death and fate. Like if we look at the Sandman comics, obviously there's New Game and stuff. But yeah, anyway, I think that's a an interesting one. So. I have tasks enough this day, said Death in a voice as heavy as Neutronium. The White Plague abides even now in Pseudopolis, and I am bound there to rescue many of its citizens from his grasp. Such a one has not been seen these hundred years. I am expected to stalk the streets as is my duty. I refer to the matter of the little wanderer and the rogue wizard, said Fate softly. I imagine, yeah, I imagine Fate has a soft voice because it's like, well, people can't, people can't escape him. He's, you know, the ultimate. In the same way that death is a, a booming monotone, fate is a soft whisper that you can't escape. Seating himself beside death's black-robed form and staring down at the distant multifaceted jewel, which was the di- uh, disc universe, as seen from this extra-dimensional, extradimensional vantage point, the sight ceased its song. They die in a few hours, said fate. It is fate. Death stirred and the stone began to move again. I thought you would be pleased, said fate. Death shrugged, a particularly expressive gesture for someone whose visible shape is that of a skeleton. I did indeed chase them mightily, once, he said. But at last the thought came to me that sooner or later all men must die. Everything dies in the end. I can be robbed but never denied, I told myself. Why worry? I too cannot be cheated snapped faith so I have heard said death still grinning I like that I like that moment I think it's one of the better moments in the book I think it really I think it really just captures what death is going to co- like come on to be where he's like you know he can't be cheated so he may as well except for the case of Rincewind, he may as well like take an interest in human affairs because everyone's going to die at their pre-described times
0: Right and cats Oh yes I cats because why not yeah, and cat. Well, since you brought up fate, there is an interesting. So in Weird Sisters, we were introduced to this idea that the gods p- don't play chess, they but they do play games, but it's more like snakes and ladders, shoots uh, and ladders, guns. where there are yeah. snakes at the bottoms. Yeah, and so we actually get to see a game that's played by the gods in the Sending of the Eight. So blind Io and fate and the lady whose whose name you can't say or she'll disappear. An offler, the crocodile god. And I, I found this to be a really interesting scene because it reads more like a and d game, right?
1: Yeah, it definitely feels like that. You know, where like the ogre springs up and stuff, it definitely feels like there's a DM and it's like, you know, these are a hapless player characters, um, Rincewind and Twoflower. you know. They're really hapless player characters and they're being stuck with a uh, really sadistic d- or GM
0: Yeah, I I mean, I think so, and of course, the showdown is between Fate and the lady. The lady seems to be more on Rincewind and Two Flowers' side, you know, and and Fate is of course against them, which we kind of see in that conversation with Death. I think that's fascinating because Fate keeps saying that he can't be cheated, but the lady is the one who kind of resists him. She's like the wild card, right? And of course we get to yeah. see her later in uh, in the last story when she appears to Rincewind and to Flower.
1: I, I I quite like that. Um, but it's also it's also really interesting, I think, because you have this direct contradiction then to what's in Weird Sisters, right? Like they don't play games, but they do when it suits them. And I think it's quite I I don't know if this makes sense, but I think it's like quite a human like an arrogantly human perspective to say, oh, well, the gods don't play games with the universe because it suits your worldview to say that. So maybe it doesn't contradict it, but I think it's distinctly and arrogantly human to assume that the gods do anything if they exist. I'm an atheist, so I assume they don't do anything because I assume they don't exist. Like, whether they do or they don't, they play their own games. If they do, they play by their own rules. Uh, Well, I guess we're stuck.
0: Right, and I think that's part of what the overall message is here because different characters in this series have different relationships with religion. Like, you have people who are religious who, you know, sacrifice at these different temples that we see. In Ankh-Morpork. But then you have characters like Granny Weatherwax, who like in Weird Sisters, just, she knows that the gods exist, but she doesn't encourage them, right? Like, she doesn't have to believe in them because she knows they exist, but she doesn't really subscribe to them as, like, deities. And so, I think it's interesting too, that here we're given a very, it's a very cruel version of the gods, right? Like, they play games for their amusement, but they're not, like, complex, interesting games. They're, like, bloody unfair you know like you're probably not going to enjoy this kind of games
1: yeah it's like uh that quote from king lear that gloucester says as flies to wanton boys are we to the gods they kill us for their sport where it's like you know they could reach down and just like fucking kill any of us at any moment right if they wanted to yeah but they're not real <laughs>
0: So I I guess this brings me to another question about structure. So what did you think? So this is very different than what we're going to see. I I don't think any of the other books, and maybe I'll be surprised as I reread them, but I don't think any of the other books have this structure of like the four short stories, novellas. Usually Discworld books don't even have chapters, right? They're just kind of different sections. So what did you think about this structure, this sort of interconnected novella?
1: I didn't like it. It feels like a short story collection, but I don't think any of these were put, were published elsewhere. I think they were written for this, right?
0: Yeah, I, I couldn't find any mention of them being published somewhere else.
1: Yeah, so it'd be different if they were, if this were a collection of like fantasy things that Terry Pratchett had written. I, you know, like where you see Stephen King in his first short story collection, Night Shift, where it's like, here's all the pieces he wrote for men's magazines when he was starting to get into writing and trying to build up his name. You know, it would make sense if it were something like that. But the fact that this is just, for some reason, divided up into four different short stories, I think it's really weird. I think it really fucks with the pacing. And the pacing is strange enough because the story feels really rushed in places. And then, like, if I feel like it dawdles an awful lot, especially in Lure of the Worm.
0: I do know. And it's weird because, so if this was published as individual short stories, like if they were published in various science fiction, fantasy journals, you would expect the type of language that you have here, where each story kind of reintroduces you to the characters. Like, this is Rincewind. This is Two Flower. This is why Rincewind can't do magic. Like, you would expect that kind of language because, you know, someone might be reading it who hadn't read one of the previous stories about these characters. But since they weren't published separately, since they're all like published in the same book, it kind of becomes a little repetitive. Like there are the story of Rincewind going into the library and reading the Octavo and getting the, the spell stuck in his head is told to us like four different times in this yeah. novella or in this novel.
1: It feels like uh, it feels redundant, like and it it annoys me a little bit because it's like I don't need to be told these things. I remember these things when I read them in a book series, but like where it makes sense, you know. Other Discworld books, they'll tell you, you know, they'll sort of like reintroduce you to the like, oh, this is a planet that's on the back of four elephants that's on the back of a great turtle of the Two, and a series of unfortunate events spends an awful lot of time catching people up, and it's like, okay, these books are meant to be read. You know, they're meant to be read in a series order, but it's also like you can read, pick up any of these and in theory know what's going on. And so it makes sense then, but it really annoys me as a person and really annoyed me in this one where it's like, I know, you know, it's not even like I were binging a TV show and then it tells me previously on and it's like, I've been watching this, you know, it's like, it's like if you were watching a film, like imagine watching a two hour film and every half hour they stopped and just stopped the story completely and they told you everything that had happened so far again, you know, for no other reason. Like, it was completely addressed to the audience. It wasn't like, oh, we're introducing a new character and we need to bring them up to speed, you know. Like, if it were just an exposition dump to the audience every half hour for some fucking reason. Like, imagine how awful that would be. So I think, like, if you're unsure about how this is in the color of magic, you only have to transfer it into another medium and imagine how that would be and then go, oh, yeah, this this makes no sense.
0: Right. And, and speaking of that, there's even like – so I, I thought of two things when you said that. The first thing was – the way in which Terry Pratchett reintroduces the idea of the disc world in every novel, like the first page of almost every single novel is like, this is the disc world. It is a disc on the back of four elephants on the back of a giant turtle named Atuan who swims through the stars, which is a really cool concept that actually really reminds me of Robert Jordan and the wheel of time. Like how every, Oh my God. Every single book at the beginning, he always does like the same thing about like, this is the wheel of time. And like, yeah, it almost feels like a television show, right? Like, how there are some, like, like almost like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, like, every single time that I they... I have seen that. Oh, well, every t- single time they roll the intro music, like, the intro credits, you can hear Giles' voice at the beginning say, once in every generation, there is born a slayer. And, like, so it's almost like, it's almost like that, where, like, you kind of get that reintroduction at the beginning, but it's also, it also kind of becomes a trope of the series.
1: I, I think at the start of every Wheel of Time book, specifically at the start in the opening chapters, of well, like in the opening of the first chapter, not the prologue, when they go, a wind rose in wherever, and it went through this mountain, and it went over this geographical feature, and blah, 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 and it was a beginning, but it was a beginning, not the beginning, because there's no beginnings in the Wheel of Time. I think that's okay, that specifically, because it's a themed opening, but they do spend ages telling us stuff. Part of me thinks that's okay because like in once you get into the slump at around book eight, you'll get like a couple chapters like so spoiler alert, Perrin has this plot line where his wife gets kidnapped. And so you're like, okay. And then in like book eight, you'll get like half of the book where you'll like be following Perrin's POV alongside other ones, and then you just get to a point and then Robert Jordan is like, okay, I'm not doing this for any of the rest of this book. You're gonna have to read the rest or the next book to find out more of this plot line. And so part of it makes sense where it's like, okay, I need to reintroduce all that's happened, but it's like, why do you feel the need to do that? You could have done this like literally any other way, Mr. Jordan. Yeah. Uh, you know, you could have spent the entire book. You could have had an entire book, which is literally just parents' plot line and then gone. Okay. The next book, this takes place at the same time, but this is like math. Plot line, or what? You know what I mean? Yeah. There's so many other ways that you could have done it without like splitting it up and having to do that lazy reintroduction.
0: Yeah, and I feel like it makes more sense though in Jordan's books, and when you look at the Discworld, which is 41 books, I mean it's it's a huge series. It makes more sense to do that, but in the Color yeah. of Magic, the Color of Magic is only 241 pages in my copy. Like it is a very mm. very short book. You don't have to tell me some of these stories multiple times.
1: But also, consider all... Like, if you took all of the Discworld books and combined the number of pages, I'd say that is less than half the pages, less than maybe a quarter of the pages that are in the Wheel of Time series. That may in fact be true. Yeah, there is no need to do this.
0: Listeners, if you have tabulated all of the pages of Wheel of Time and all of the pages of the Discworld...
1: Oh, hold on. (laughs) Give me one second. There's literally a Wikipedia page. Oh. Uh, Wheel of Time. Brandon Sanderson's 15-book uh, epic, 12,000 pages long. Basically 800 pages per book. This is like a rough estimate. We don't have a thing. Now I'm just going to keyword search disk world. 15,497 pages. Wow. Yes. So then if we do the math... So hold on. Let me just go back. What's the Wheel of Time again?
0: Oh, I've already forgotten about it. I am... I too am gay and too hot for maths.
1: Hold on, what? Twelve thousand pages? That doesn't make sense. How is no? How can the Discworld be more pages than?
0: I mean, there are forty-one books. Maybe plus ephemera.
1: Yeah, I suppose if you count ephemera, yeah, okay, there's more pages if you count ephemera and stuff in.
0: But still, fifteen, Discworld. fifteen but books still. versus forty-one books, and they're all like they're. They're pretty close. Like, it's not, like, hugely different. The other thing I thought of when you were talking about the structure of The Color of Magic is that Pratchett adopts a really strange narrative voice in parts of this. And obviously, the narrator in Terry Pratchett's books is a character. Like, the narrator is, like, weirdly omniscient, like, knows about Earth, which none of the other characters in the book know about. Like, we've talked about this before. This narrator in The Color of Magic uses this specific language that I really dislike where he'll say, like, this is really true in the beginning when he's talking about the great Atuan and he's introducing these characters where he says, like, see, the great Atuan, the turtle comes, swimming slowly through the interstellar gulf. And then, like, later when the narrator introduces Rincewind... All eyes in the room were watching the stranger, except for a pair belonging to Rincewind the wizard, who was sitting in the darkest corner, nursing a mug of very small beer. He was watching the luggage. Watch Rincewind. Look at him. Scrawny, like most wizards, and clad in a dark red robe on which a few mystic sigils were embroidered in tarnished sequins. I really dislike it when narratives, when narrators tell us to look at things in a book, like, Look at Rincewind. Here's this description of him, and I just I feel like that's a really weird position to be put in as somebody who's not looking at something visual. That might just be a personal pet peeve.
1: I think there's a more egregious example of it later on in in *Lure of the Worm*, where Hrun is walking through stuff, and it's like observe Hrun as he walks through the corridors, blah blah. I hate that. Whereas this feels out of place for. Like this, watch Rincewind. It feels like it's from a different story entirely that's been co opted in. It feels like, like a casino heist film, you know? Like, imagine this. They're in a casino. Everyone is watching the table except for Rincewind. Rincewind is watching the dealer or something, let's say. Then you'd have Jason Statham will come on the, on the VO and it would go, This is Rincewind. Watch Rincewind. Watch what he does. He's watching the dealer. And that's what you would have, and so, and then the camera would pan around the casino, and it would like go on to someone else, and they'd be like, I don't know, this is sideways, Susan, <laughs> um, or something, and Susan would be entirely on the y-axis or something. <laughs> yeah. So it feels like it, like it feels like it's been co-opted from an entirely different thing. So it doesn't make sense for us to be told to watch Ringsman when well, Ringsman doesn't actually do anything at that time. Right.
0: It feels like a really weird, like the the narrator is trying to talk to us directly, which you can do in literature. Like C.S. Lewis and Neil Gaiman both use that narrative technique occasionally in a really.
1: Terry Pratchett does it yeah, all the time, but it feels, this feels like forced. Like it, yeah, it doesn't feel like his right. narrative voice. And so
0: there, there are sections of this, 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 there are sections of this novel that do feel like him, but there are sections like that that I just don't. Let me ask you though, what is your favorite? So there are four novellas or parts or stories or whatever we want to call them there's the color of magic which is the first one the sending of eight the lure of the worm and close to the edge which one was your favorite of those four
1: i think the prologue to the sending of eight or close to the edge no i'm sure is it close or closer
0: close i can't remember
1: yeah Uh, yeah close to the edge i think i liked the concept of it. And so I feel like that makes up for the execution.
0: So what did you like about the sending of the eight? So that's the one with the, the Lovecraftian elements. You get the, like it's the travel narrative where they are, they're, they're traveling outside of Onk They're going on this adventure. They run across Bell Shamaroth, who is like the, the center of the eight, like his number is eight. And I find that fascinating because Rincewind won't actually say the word eight. And the word 8 is, like, unlucky on the Discworld, especially for wizards, which actually gets developed in a later book, which we'll talk about. It reminded me of, like, how 13 is an unlucky number in the U.S. and, like, how a lot of, a lot of like, hotels won't have a 13th floor or they won't have, like, a room 13. They'll just, like, skip it, which happens at the Unseen University. Like, Rincewind is yeah. in 7A <laughs> instead of the, the room eight.
1: Ireland literally did this with its cars. So the way our car license plates are laid out, it's like you have the year in two digits. So, you know, 990001, whatever. And then you have a two letter identifier for the county that it's from. Or, well, unless it's Dublin, then it's like D, special things like that. Galway is G, but like, you know, you have West would be WH, Meath is MH, Wexford WX, things like that. And then you have a number which shows what number car it was that was sold in that county for that year and so we've got you know we've got like oh nine ten eleven twelve and then when we got up to thirteen we changed the numbering system apparently because everyone is super superstitious and it changed to uh one three one and one three two you have a switch over in going into july and so now we have this thing so then if you see like a 212 car you know that that car was sold between july and december of 2021 all because apparently the people who make car license plates in ireland are afraid of the number 13
0: right i mean it i feel like numbers really do have like this cultural power but in this story they have literal power like if they say the number eight in uh bel temple they call call forth this like Cthulhu-like monster, right? <laughs> Who's, like, trying to to yeah. eat the world and sort of bend space around it. So what was your least favorite section of this?
1: The lure of the worm. No questions asked.
0: Okay, what was it about the lure of the worm that you didn't like?
1: It was so dumb. I hated it. I hate the language. I hate how weirdly chauvinistic it was. Which is especially weird because what's her name? Liesa? Yes. Yeah, the princess, she feels like objectified, despite the fact that she's kind of like in a position of power in this society. Like objectified by the narrative. I and mean, it's really weird. Yeah, like it comes back to the whole, oh, the wench was comely. I hate that word. Don't ever refer to me as comely. Hot as Who's I referring am. referring
0: to people as comely in this day and age.
1: Whoever referred to anyone as comely? I don't think anyone, even in Victorian England, referred to anyone has comments.
0: What's interesting about The Lure of the Worm, which is also my least favorite, although it does have a really interesting... It has two really interesting points about it in its favor that I'll get to. It's a direct parody of Dragonflight, which is the first book in the Dragon Riders of Pern series that Anne McCaffrey is very famous for. What's interesting is that, like, Dragonflight, the main character of that story is called Lessa, so it's very close to Liesa, who's the the main character of this and it's a very like the dragon writers are a very like matriarchal utopian society and they have like telepathic bonds with like dragons and this it's very strange to me that terry pratchett's parody of this went in a very like chauvinistic sort of way and i don't think he's trying to be chauvinistic i think he's trying to say something about these types of stories but it is also very interesting considering the fact that that's not in the original story at all. Like that attitude.
1: Yeah, I don't know. This whole thing doesn't really make sense to me. And I'm not, I don't care for the story enough to devote right. the time and energy to try and come up with a reason.
0: There are two things about it that I think are in its favor. One, the imaginary dragons part of this is really interesting like the idea that they don't have dragons they have to like imagine them into existence like and some people are better at imagining dragons than others which that's the name of the band it came from it came directly from the story as i think we've discussed
1: yeah it definitely uh it definitely feels like that but it's like have we just blown the case wide apart is this like a is this like a thing that people know or
0: Oh, I have no idea. I feel like it's true until I'm told otherwise. This is the origin story of Imagine Dragons.
1: Well, it's really weird because the origin story for them is like a lot of their songs were written for a Spider-Man musical and then they were like, hold on, these are quote unquote good. <laughs> and they decided to, look, I'm not a fan of Imagine Dragons. Oh, me so. either.
0: I make fun of them a lot. But yeah, it feels like maybe this is their origin story. This this kind of second rate Pratchett novella inside of a, Novel, but I do like the imaginary dragons. I like that in order to escape, Two Flower imagines what what is the dragon's name? Nine Tails.
1: Yeah, Nine Tails.
0: Nine, yeah, Two Flower imagines Nine Tails in order to fly out, which I find I just find that fascinating. I find the idea of like being able to imagine a dragon, and of course, Rincewind can't, right? He can't imagine a dragon, which is why when Two Flower gets knocked out, they start falling, which leads to the other interesting part of the story. The moment in which Rincewind and Twoflower very briefly, like Rincewind can't imagine a dragon, but he can imagine a world in which science exists. And so he imagines he and Twoflower are in this plane and that he is like a Swedish doctor.
1: Uh, Rinswand.
0: Rinswand. Yeah. It, it took, I had to read this section like twice in order to understand what was happening. And I found it hilarious both times. Yeah. He's suddenly like in this plane. Right. Like they're falling through the air. He's in this plane. He thinks he's been eaten by a dragon for a moment, right? And he has, like, a bomb. And, or he thinks it like, there's a bomb. There's, like, a bomb threat on the plane, but he's, like, wearing new clothes. And he's Swedish, but he can understand what's happening. The way that there's this sudden scene, and, of course, that gets them safely to the ground. And then they rinse wind and two flower again, and we're back in the disc world. For me, this this connects to a really interesting theme with Rincewind, which is like the science versus magic. So obviously when we talk about a fantasy series, a lot of times we're like, oh, well, magic is like, Im- like part of the imagination. Like magic is associated with the imagination, but on the Discworld, it's so commonplace and it's such a part of just like the daily fabric that Rincewind's imagination is more connected with science, which to him is like, Really outlandish. I don't know. What did you think of this scene?
1: I think it's, uh, I don't know. I have mixed feelings about when fantasy tries to do technology. Where I think like Brandon Sanderson does it quite well in the Mistborn series, where it's like this is a world which starts off as steampunk, and you see it gradually grow into having more and more advanced technology. I think like the world of Six of Crows that does it reasonably well. But at the same time, it's like, I don't know, like this is done in kind of an interesting way. And I think it's the best example I've seen of when fantasy does like, oh, we're in a parallel universe or, oh, we're just really far in the future or past to a modern civilization where they do some sort of time travel or whatever. And they come out in the modern world. I think that's lazy hackneyed storytelling for the most part. Um, I think Pratchett does it quite well. It, again, it's like the only redeeming factor of this, of the lore of the worm for me. I think it's interesting.
0: It's not even a page long.
1: Yeah. I think it's interesting that Rincewind wants to be in a world where there is no magic, where there's science. Whereas like the whole concept of magical realism and magical escapism, where it's like, I want to get out of my mundane, you know, I want to get out of the drudgery of my mundane life. God, I wish I could go somewhere where I were a wizard in a beautiful fantasy land.
0: And we can really see this. It's in my book, it's on page 50 and 51, where he's talking to the imp inside Two Flowers' camera. And he says, hey, look, this is all wrong. When Two Flowers said they'd got a better kind of magic in the empire, I thought, I thought the imp looked at him expectantly. Rincewind cursed to himself. Well, if you must know, I thought he didn't mean magic, not as such. What else is there, then? Rincewind began to feel really wretched. I don't know, he said. A better way of doing things, I suppose. Something with a bit of sense to it. Harnessing harnessing the lightning or something. The imp gave him a kind but pitying look. Lightning is the spears hurled by the thunder giants when they fight, it said gently. Established meteorological fact, you can't harness it. I know, said Rincewind miserably. That's the flaw in the argument, of course. And I love that exchange because, like, first of all, the imp talks to Rincewind here like he's, like, just not understanding a basic fact of the universe. And the basic fact of the universe is that lightning is the the spears that the thunder giants throw, which I just, it establishes that things work very differently on the disc world than they do on, you know, the reader's earth. But It also shows like this longing that Rincewind has to live in a universe that's less chaotic than the Discworld. All right. uh, A couple of other things to talk about. We haven't talked about the luggage. So the luggage is also a very important character, item, thing in in the Rincewind series.
1: I think the luggage uses it, its pronouns.
0: Yeah, I think so too. So what did you think of the luggage?
1: Hmm. Hmm. <sighs> I want to like the luggage. I think the concept of it is quite cool. Yeah, uh Ezekiel 7 and the Permit Efficacy of Grace by the Mountain Goats off their 2010, I want to say album, The Life of the World to Come. They have this line, drive drive till the rain stops, keep driving. And that's the kind of attitude that I have or that I that I feel like the um luggage has where it's like no matter how far Rincewind and Twoflower get away from it it will follow them you know even if it has to like go under the water and walk you know or like bite people to get away from it you know it, it will drive until the rain stops and it will keep driving
0: yeah it's it's like homicidally loyal to its owner which in this book is Twoflower. so
1: you it say in bullies... this book like it's going to change in later books
0: perhaps. We'll have to see. But he, like, the luggage, like, threatens Rincewind, uh, and Rincewind knows that, like, he can try to get away, but the lu- like, he has to sleep. He, he even says something along the lines of, I have to sleep sometimes, which is, like, such a threatening thing to say. <laughs> like, like, it's very, like, Nightmare on Elm Street, right? Where you have to sleep sometimes. Like, the the luggage is, of course, a trunk, which is a very common type of You know, it's a type of luggage in fantasy, like you put all your stuff in a trunk, but it's like a completely magical one. It's made completely out of sapient pear wood, which is extremely valuable. And everyone who recognizes that it is made out of the sapient pear wood knows how valuable it is. It has these little legs that it runs around on. And the inside of it is very like, uh, it's almost like the TARDIS. It's like bigger on the inside than the outside because it holds all of these things, including two flowers things, but it also swallows people sometimes. And sometimes things come out of it that you're not really expecting. It's, for a character that has no dialogue, it has so much personality as well.
1: Yeah, this is like the animated sidekick, almost. This is like like the BB-8. I hate Star Wars. I've never seen it, but I hate it. But this is what I imagine BB-8 is like, or what's that other droid?
0: R2-D2. R2-D2?
1: Yeah. The one that doesn't talk. I know C-3PO talks, so it can't be c-3po yes this is what i imagine star wars is like
0: yeah i i feel like the i think
1: that would be an amazing concept for a show just ask me what i think star wars is like
0: (laughs) what do you think who do you think anakin skywalker is yeah that'd be hilarious
1: i know that's darth vader
0: yeah i think the luggage is really interesting and of course will be developed as as we go along but But yeah, Twoflower doesn't seem very concerned because he knows that the luggage will follow him anywhere. So, like, if it gets lost, he's like, oh, it'll just show up eventually, which I think is great. I wish my luggage did that, show up eventually.
1: Yeah, it would negate the need for baggage carousels at airports.
0: It's true. It's true. And finally, before we get to our wrap-up of the show, we have to talk about the literal cliffhanger that happens at the end of Close to the Edge. So this is the only cliffhanger in any of the Discworld books. Usually the Discworld books are self-contained. Even though there are storylines that go from book to book, There, it never ends quite like this with somebody in danger or there's this type of suspense. But in this ending, we literally see Rincewind hanging off of the edge of the Discworld, right? What do you mm. think about this cliffhanger and the way that it's set up?
1: I think, okay, so... With the Dresden Files, the two most recent books, Peace Talks and Battlegrounds, they came out like within the same year, like a couple of months apart. I think maybe one in May and one in September, let's say. And when you were reading Peace Talks, the pacing of it was really, really weird. You were like, okay, all these things need to get done. But we're like 300 pages plus into this maybe like 350 to 400 page book. And then when you get to the end of it, you realize that oh, this is like technically written as part of like basically one large book with the next book, Battleground. And so that's why the pacing feels off because technically you're only reading half of like a long book. And so that's why I feel like an I can excuse kind of the pacing issues. Well, at the moment I can't, because I feel like the color of magic and the next one the light fantastic right yes like this one and the next one the light fantastic kind of form a larger overarching story and also like the fact that it's a literal cliffhanger he's literally like hanging onto the edge of the world i think is funny enough to justify it in terms of the pacing at the end i don't know whether this is correct or not but also like the light fantastic is another rinse book correct
0: yes it it picks up directly after The Color of Magic. And if it, if it helps, the BBC TV series, The Color of Magic, actually adapts both The Color of Magic and The Light Fantastic. So they are treated okay. as one work in that adaptation.
1: When you look at, like, the series order, when you consider it, it's like, okay, so The Color of Magic is *Rincewind*. in terms of, like, who they talk about. Or, like, who their main character is. The Color of Magic is Rincewind. The Life Fantastic is Rincewind. What's the next book?
0: Equal Rights was the third book. It came out in 1987.
1: That's a, a witch's book, right? Yes. Yeah, I, I knew the next one was a witch's. So you've got that one. And then more is number four. So that's that. And then you go to Sorcery, right? Which, Which is, is also a rinsewind. Yeah, and then you go Weird Sisters, which is a Witches, and then you go number seven is Guards, Guards?
0: Pyramids actually came out before Guards, Guards.
1: Right, okay. Well, anyway, when you look at the first two, it's really weird that it goes Rincewind, Rincewind, Witches, Death, Rincewind, Witches. So I feel like viewing The Color of Magic and The Light Fantastic as one book kind of, I guess, reconciles that. Like, it's not too bad but it didn't like you know it would make more sense where it's like you have one book of basically each of the primary series and within disc world one after the other and then it almost repeats like i don't know i don't know what series pyramids is from but yeah
0: well we'll we'll talk about that when we get to pyramids because there are certain series that don't that have less cohesion and pyramids is one of those books so we'll talk about that when we get there But yeah, I I do think it's interesting. It'll be interesting next week when we talk about the Light Fantastic, because that's the next one we're going to read, to see if it kind of follows in the same thematic line as The Color of Magic, or if there are big differences, because it did come out three years after The Color of Magic. So there was more of a gap between The Color of Magic and The Light Fantastic than there were between any of the other Discworlds. Like, even, like, Equal Rights and Mort came out the same year, 1987. So he definitely picks up steam as far as, like, publication Would you say he's steam. Uh,
1: <laughs> raising steam?
0: Ha 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 ha. Yeah, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this is resolved in the next book. Uh, I mean, I already know how it's resolved, but it'll be interesting to read again how it's resolved in the next book and to see if some of these issues that we've identified in The Color of Magic, if they continue into the Life Fantastic or if it starts to veer away from this formula that we see here at the beginning so before we wrap up we have to of course do our our tallies here i didn't count the number of death sightings in this book because there are many um but he does first appear the character of death first appears on page 60 when Rincewind is hurrying through the crowd and he beholds death it had to be death no one else went around with empty eye sockets and of course the scythe over one shoulder was another clue as Rincewind stared in horror, a courting couple, laughing at some private joke, walked straight through the apparition without appearing to notice it. Death, insofar as it was possible in a face with no movable features, looked surprised. So that's the, that is the very first Discworld sighting of Death, and of course he appears in every subsequent novel, as we have said, but he does appear many times. I think he appears in every single story in Color of Magic as well. Surprisingly. There is only one footnote.
1: Yeah. So I think that is my favorite footnote. The one footnote? (laughs) Yeah. But I really enjoy how it talks. Like, I like learning about cosmology and, like, the actual world in which fantasy stories are situated in. So having, you know, this footnote talk about how Hubbard and Rimward work, like, the holidays in Discworld and how the calendar is divided, I think that's really cool. So I feel like that nearly would have been my favorite footnote anyway, had there been more than one footnote.
0: So obviously Pratchett had not developed his footnote game yet, because there's only this one. And like you said, it focuses a lot on the cosmology of the disc world. Are you the one who told me that Wittershins is a real direction?
1: Yeah, Wittershins means anti-clockwise.
0: That's fascinating to me. I always just assumed he made that up.
1: No, Wittersons is um, anti-clockwise, and deshel means uh, clockwise, because the Irish for the Irish for right is er yesh, so that's how you remember them. Yeah, deshel, according to w- w- uh motion towards the right in the direction of the hands of a clock or the apparent motion of the sun in the northern hemisphere.
0: Yeah, I think sometimes it's really easy to forget that this is a disc because we focus so like on specific parts of the disc world that unless the discness uh, is emphasized that sometimes it's easy to forget that there would be different directional ways of thinking about it if you were living on a disc as opposed to a sphere. So like the I found the hubward and rimward thing interesting like those are like the primary directions the hubward and wimward and then turnwise and Wittershins.
1: Like, I mean, you have Captain Widdershins as a character, and I feel like, how many times have I mentioned a series of unfortunate events in I this I think
0: every podcast? episode this is so far.
1: Basically an, this is basically an unofficial series of unfortunate <laughs> events podcast, which I, I shall make that. I will make a series of unfortunate events podcast at some stage. But yeah, you have Captain Widdershins who is you know, things are constantly going awry for him. And so, you know, he's anti-clockwise. He's against the nature of the clock and the sun. So, of course, things are going to go incorrectly for him.
0: And that, that makes sense to me. Okay, so what was the thing that made you laugh out loud while reading this book?
1: I don't think anything particularly made me laugh out loud. Like, I wasn't too big a fan of this book. So there's ones where I was like, hmm, that's good. You know, like the first Death sighting, a bit, you know, like a bit further on from the bit you read where Death is like, well, I could give you a very fast horse. Um, Let's see if I can find it. Oh, no, not... Of course. What's so bloody vexing about the whole business is that I was expecting to meet thee in But that's 500 miles away! You don't have to tell me. The whole system's got screwed up again. I can see that. Look, there's no chance of you... Rincewind backed away, hands spread protectively in front of him. The dried fish salesman on a nearby stall watched this madman with interest. (laughs) Not a chance! I could lend you a very fast horse. No! It won't hurt a bit. No! Rinceman turned and ran. Death watched him go and shrugged bitterly. Sod you then, Death said.
0: <laughs> I, think that
1: was, I think that was probably like one of the funnier bits. Or, you know, when Scrofula reveals that he's not in fact Death.
0: Yeah, Scro- the Scrofula scene at the end made me laugh. Because like, Scrofula is just such a funny name, too. It just adds like this... It's a real disease. Yeah, it is a real disease. I... Really love. There were two moments that really stood out to me. One because it actually made me laugh out loud, and the other one just because it reminded me of something that is near and dear to my heart. But on page sixty-four in my my book, th- when Broadman, the owner of the broken drum, sets it sets the broken drum on fire, and he's trying to find the matches, and and suddenly this lighted taper appears mid next to him, and it's Death giving him like the t- the lighting. That that made me laugh. Like the fact that there's this horrible fire. And death is the one who gives Brodman the flame. He's like, "Here, that's take this." That's literally
1: like something out of Scooby Doo. You know, like they'd be like barricading a room or something from the monster that's chasing them, Shaggy and Scooby, and then they'd be like chucking chairs and tables in front, and then they turn around, and they take a chair from the monster who is in the room, and they go, "Thank you." And then they do that and then they go, wait a minute and turn back around and they go, Aah! there's the monster there. Yeah,
0: yeah. That, that is almost exactly what this scene is, which it's great. The other standout funny moments, because like you, I just didn't find a lot of these jokes. That, a lot of these jokes were funny. They just weren't like laugh out loud funny like a lot of his other jokes are in other books. But I, I did want to point out that on page 124, there's this section that is really great. It's uh, magic never dies. It merely fades away. Nowhere was this more evident on the wide blue expanse of the Discworld than in those areas which had been the scene of the great battles of the Mage Wars, which had happened very shortly after creation. In those days, magic in its raw state had been widely available and had been eagerly utilized by the First Men in their war against the gods. The precise origin of the Mage Wars have been lost in the fogs of time, but Disc philosophers agree that the First Men, shortly after their creation, understandably lost their temper. And that that section of text to me reads like Douglas Adams. It reads like there's this scene in the Douglas Adams book So Long and Thanks for All the Fish, the creator's last words to creation and it's the the last words are sorry for the inconvenience. And that really reminded me this this section really reminded me of like a Douglas Adams type style of humor and that made me feel like very warm inside because I have a very Special place in my heart for Douglas Adams.
1: Yeah, like it definitely feels in the same vein as um, time is an illusion, lunchtime doubly so.
0: Yes, exactly. And I think Pratchett, I mean, I think Pratchett has been compared to Adams quite favorably. But I think that he does have a very different narrative voice a lot of times. But there are just these little moments where you can kind of see that, that style of humor.
1: Mm, But it's also like, what else would men do? I. Men are the worst. <laughs> it's true. And it's like, of course they would get magic and they would lose their temper and have a giant war. Right.
0: Of course they'd be angry about being created.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, I understand the whole I have no mouth and I must scream, but it's also like, men just need to, like, calm down a fucking peg, <laughs> You know?
0: Chill out. You can
1: quote me on that. Like, if you take nothing else on this podcast, quote, men need to calm down a fucking peg." It's true. Nigel. Yeah.
0: men, we're going to need you to take, take, take it down me. like five notches. Hmm. So what is the thing that made you think?
1: So when I, when I read these, I try and think of like more places that, to take things from, you know, because it's like I want to show that I have read them, but there's also like so few bits that I actually like that I'm just going to go with the conversation between death and fate again, where it's like, well, yeah, these things actually can't be avoided you know, when it really comes down to it, they're concepts.
0: Yeah, like you, I don't know if anything about this book really struck me as particularly profound, but I did really appreciate, once again, that scene with Rincewind and the Imp where Rincewind is clearly wishing for a world where things are governed by rationality and science. And not magic like the Discworld is. Because I think for a lot of us, like you said, magic is an escape. Like we want the world to be more magical. We want there to be more than just, you know, science and rationality. But for Rincewind, who lives in a magical world, science would be an escape, right? It would be an escape from like the chaos of the magic. I mean, I think that the world is chaos anyway, but it's, it just, really drives home the point that whatever's normal to you you're going to be looking for something else in order to make sense of it all. So for us, it's magic for windswind, it's science. This book, not my favorite, not your favorite, I think, but it is an interesting to see where the disc world sort of came from, what the kind of genesis of the idea was for this particular world that we're exploring. So next week, we're picking up Where the Color of Magic Left Off to see what happens after Rincewind goes over the edge of the disc in the Light Fantastic. So, go ahead and read the Light Fantastic if you are reading along with us. Where can people find you online and on their headphones, Nigel?
1: You can find me mainly on Twitter, at Spicy Nigel, where I am tweeting out all my different podcast ideas. Speaking of podcasts, I have... Two main ones going at the minute, um, archive admirers, which is a bi-weekly slash fortnightly re-listen and discussion of the Magnus archives by Rusty Quill. You can find that on Twitter at admirers archive and on Tumblr at archive admirers. And you can also, you can find my other podcast, Hyperfixations, which every episode we have a different guest on to talk about an area of expertise of theirs, some random topic that they are really interested in and um, you can find that on twitter at Hyperfixations p or on instagram Hyperfixations pod and then you know basically wherever you listen to podcasts that's where you can find them
0: all right and you can find me on twitter and letterboxd at suela tessa suela is spelled s-w-e-h-l-a you can also find me on my other podcast monkey off my backlog and you can find that on twitter at monkey backlog or wherever you get your podcasts read us out nigel
1: Yeah, I like how this one begins after the end. There was a subtle change of scene, a slight purplish tint to the sky. A tall black cloaked figure was standing on the air next to the tree. It had a scythe in one hand. Its face was hidden in the shadows of the hood. I have come for thee, said the invisible mouth, in tones as heavy as a whale's heartbeat. The trunk of the tree gave another protesting creak, and a pebble bounced off Rincewind's helmet as one root tore loose from the rock. Death himself always came in person to harvest the souls of wizards. "'What am I going to die of?' said Rincewind. The tall figure hesitated. "'Pardon?' it said. "'Well, I haven't broken anything and I haven't drowned, so what am I about to die of? You can't just be killed by death. There has to be a reason,' said Rinswind. To his utter amazement, he didn't feel terrified anymore. For about the first time in his life, he wasn't frightened. Pity the experience didn't look like lasting for long." Death appeared to reach a conclusion. You could die of terror, the hood intoned. The voice still had its graveyard ring, but there was a slight tremor of uncertainty. Won't work, said Rincewind smugly. There doesn't have to be a reason, said Death. I can just kill you. Hey, you can't do that. It'd be murder. The cowl figure sighed and pulled back its hood. Instead of the grinning death's head that Rincewind had been expecting, He found himself looking up into the pale and slightly transparent face of a rather worried demon of sorts. Oh, I'm making rather a mess of this, aren't I? it said wearily. You're not Death. Who are you? cried Winstead. Scrofula. Scrofula? Death couldn't come, said the demon wretchedly. There's a big plague in Pseudopolis. He had to go and stalk the streets, so he sent me. (laughs) No one dies of Scrofula. I've got rights. I'm a wizard. All right, all right. This was going to be my big chance, said Scrofula, but look at it this way. If I hit you with this scythe, you'll be just as dead as you would be if death had done it. Who'd know? I'd know, snapped Rincewind. You wouldn't. You'd be dead, said Scrofula logically. Piss off, said Rincewind. That's all very well, said the demon. But why not try to see things from my point of view? This means a lot to me, and you've got to admit that your life isn't all that wonderful. Reincarnation can't be an improvement now. His hand flew to his mouth, but Rincewind was already pointing a trembling finger at him. Reincarnation, he said excitedly. So it is true. What the mystics say. I'm I'm admitting nothing, said Scroffit testily. It was a slip of the tongue. Now are you going to die willingly or not? No, said Rincewind. Please yourself, said the demon. He raised the scythe. It whistled down in quite a professional way, but Rincewind wasn't there. He was, in fact... Several meters below, and the distance was increasing all the time, because the branch had chosen that moment to snap and send him on his interrupted journey towards the interstellar gulf. Come back! screamed the demon. Rincewind didn't answer. He was lying belly down in the rushing air, staring down into the clouds that even now were thinning. They vanished. Below, the whole universe twinkled at Rincewind. There was the great Atuan, huge and ponderous, and pocked with craters. There was the little disk moon. There was a distant gleam that could only be the potent voyager, and there were all the stars, looking remarkable, like powdered diamonds spilled on black velvet, the stars that lured and ultimately called the boldest towards them. The whole creation was waiting for Rincewind to drop in. He did so. There didn't seem to be any alternative. The End